Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. It's a joy to be with you um, and bring God's word. We're, we're in Acts this summer. And so if you'll turn there in your Bible or flip open your Bible app. Um, let me give you some context what's going on here in Acts 11. It's really important to get that because, um, you know, before Jesus came, there were many empires that had had uh, conquered the, the world and the, and the Jewish people as well. And so when the Jewish people were conquered by these, these empires like the, the uh, Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, each time they would take these pockets of, of, uh, of Jews back to their land. And so they were living among these different scattered in, in the known world, these little pockets of Jews. And so uh, when Jesus lives, uh, you know, it was mostly Jews that were being converted and following Christ around Judea and Samaria, modern-day Israel. But with the Greek Empire taking over and building all these roads and, and, and creating a, a unified language around the known world, the, the setting, um, the context was set for Christianity to just explode. Uh, in verse 19 of our passage where we're going to begin, uh, it says that believer, believers in Judea, they started to be persecuted. So they packed up their bags in their, in their homes and they, they, um, they, they scattered everywhere. And, and they started, when they got to these new places, what'd they do? Well, they found other Jews and they started telling them, hey, we've seen the Messiah. He actually died and he rose again. I'm getting a sign. What's that? So... Um, I was just about to do that. You totally threw me off. Children, I thought you needed to hear the context of the sermon, but others think otherwise. So, parents, you may dismiss your children. I'll tell you later the context. I know you're disappointed. I was just about to bring up a cool map and everything. <laughs> Anyways, before I was rudely interrupted, um, <laughs> and before parents got angry with me, like, okay, I'm not sitting with my two-year-old. Um, so anyway, so these pockets of Jews were starting to come across uh, around the world. And one of these cities they came to was Antioch. And uh, when Brandon show, uh, preached last week, he, he, uh, he showed you a map. And so, um, and, and he also used this really cool laser pointer, okay? And I was sitting there like, I didn't know you could lose a, use a cool laser pointer in the service. So, I, you know, so half an effort to show you where Antioch is and half an effort to be as cool as Brandon, <laughs> boom, okay? I can't keep it as steady as him, but there it is, Antioch. So, uh, most of the Christians were right here in, 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 in Israel, in Judea, and there were Jerusalem right in here. 
And then they started spreading to Antioch and Cyprus and really everywhere. Um, Antioch was the third largest city in the, uh, in the known, uh, in the Roman Empire. And um, about 250 to 500,000 people, about the size of Tampa. And so uh, it contained one of these Jewish pockets of people lost in the midst of this pagan city with all these Greek and um, these Greek uh, temples to other gods and so forth. This, this one shows the, the Greek empire in the third and fourth century um, and how Christianity started to spread. But in our passage today, something completely unexpected happens. Up to this time, everyone worshiped gods of their own culture. But in Antioch, some, some started to come and tell non-Jewish Greek Hellenists about, about Jesus. And for the first time, a large number of them whose identity was completely caught up into being Greek or Roman, worshiping Greek gods, all of a sudden found a new identity. They took a new name for the first time. This new name was Christian. And so this passage marks the beginning of this unknown faith named Christianity taking over the world and eventually coming to America and coming to Florida. So please stand if you're able to read God's word. We'll be reading in Acts 11, verse 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in, the, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. A reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let me pray once more. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you help the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our heart be pleasing to you. Would the seed of your word take root and bear fruit a hundredfold so the gospel is clear and we leave here secure in our identity and belonging to Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, I really enjoy Disney and Pixar movies. They're all pretty entertaining, but I love how uh, most of them also invite you to wrestle with big life themes. This is easy to see in the first uh, Pixar movie um, called Toy Story. All these talking toys, um, um, you know, come to life when their owner, Andy, leaves the room. 
And the conflict begins when Andy has a birthday party because as soon as he has a birthday party means new toys. New toys means the fear that one of them is going to be thrown out, be rejected, unloved, and lost. Uh, one of the main characters, uh, Woody, the main cowboy uh, toy, reminds the other toys that this will never happen because of one main reality. He says, we belong to Andy. And this is signified to them by Andy writing his name on the bottom of their foot. If you bear his name, this is your, this is your identity. This is who you belong to. You are Andy's toy. And Woody is so assured of that until one day, of course, the new flashy toy shows up, Buzz Lightyear. Buzz, um, Buzz, Buzz, he has his identity in thinking that he's actually a real space ranger and, um, and not a toy. But later in the movie, there's this real touching scene where um, Buzz realizes, he sees a, a, car, a commercial of his toy and realizes for the first time that he is just a toy. And he, he says this, he says to, 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 uh, to Woody, he says, I, I'm not a space ranger. I, I'm just a toy, a stupid little insignificant toy. But Woody then turns to him and he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Look over there in that house, there's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. It's not because you're a space ranger pal, it's because you're a, a toy, you are his toy, Woody tells him. And then Buzz, he's looking at him and he, he's, he's thinking about it and he, he picks up his foot and he looks at the bottom of it and then there inscribed, um, on the bottom of his foot says Andy, and he realizes he, that's his identity. He belongs to Andy. God created us all to have a strong sense of identity, of, of, of who we are on the inside and the core of our being. I remember reading a book in seminary called Beyond Identity, and it, um, in it the author says a table or a chair or a you know, piano, um, you know, it just is. But human beings need to feel that he or she exists in terms of something. We need some standard or point of integration. Just like the planets need the sun's gravitational force to, to orbit around it, all of us have an inward need to have a strong identity that grounds us, gives us an orbit. And so the question is, is where do we find our identity? In the passage we read, the lives of many ordinary Greek first century citizens experienced a gravitational recentering of their whole identity. And this was because a new name was inscribed on them Christian. So let's look at a few things from this passage why we need a new name, why we need it, how we receive it, and then what's the result of getting a new name. So, first, let's just Think about why we need a new name. In the Bible times, names were pretty significant. They often uh, depicted part of your identity. They gave you purpose or value. And it's not uncommon for names to be uh, changed, such as Abram, when God called him, became Abraham. Jacob, when um, God called him, he wrestled with God, he, his name was changed to Israel. You're like, I didn't know we're going to have a Bible quiz this morning. <laughs> That's all for now. Um, but we don't give names the same way uh, now. 
But we no less are starving to find our sense of identity. When sin came into the world and into us, we lost a clear sense of ourself, of who we are in, our, in the core of our being, our value, our purpose. G.K. Chesterton once said that, he says, when a man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing, but instead he worships everything. And in the same way, it's the same with our identity. If we don't get our identity from God, if it's, if it's not centered around God, our sense of self is like a black hole in search of anything or anyone to give us a sense of value, of meaning, of purpose, some point of integration. So where do we easily get our identities from? In our culture, identity is a pretty big deal these days, right? Um, as much as ever, there's a shift in our culture to encouraging you to l find your identity within yourself. You be you. You define yourself. Even saying that your whole sense of identity can be found in your sexual orientation or your sexual identity. That's who you are. Our culture is also trying to get us to define ourselves in light of our political party or our social views, right? You can't just vote anymore or take a stand. You've got to choose a side. And then you've got to look down on another group that has a different identity. Maybe some of us can relate with finding our identity in other places, such as our work, our accomplishments, kind of more common things. Uh, if you ask many of us, who are you? Some of us would respond to that. Well, I am a teacher. I am a, an engineer. I'm a mother. Um, for some, it's easy to wrap your identity up in a career or a job title. Maybe it's, it's because you're really good at something. Like you're, I am a musician or I am an athlete. Growing up, I, I really hoped to play college sports and um, my, my identity was totally wrapped up in being a good athlete. And then I went to college and I, I wasn't good enough to play there. And I really remember thinking, well, who am I now apart from being a, an athlete in high school? I went searching for it then. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, in fact, we, um, we started a, a basketball uh, on, 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 um, on Tuesday nights in order to get to know young adults better, young adult men to have something to go to. And I, I, um, I, I jumped up, I came down, and I landed on, um, I would say a size 13 foot, but it actually was more like a log. It just was like, my foot rolled over, I sprained it. I came into the office the next, next week, and people were like, oh, you know, I'm limping along. They're like, with con such concern, they're like, what happened to your foot, you know? And I'm like, yeah, so we were playing basketball with some young adults, and I mean, almost every time they cut me off, playing basketball with young adults. That's funny, you know? Hey, you're not so young anymore. I didn't find it that funny. Um, but um, some of us may find our identity, it's so easy as Christians, um, and just being a good person, a good, moral, upstanding person. That's who I am. I'm, a, I'm the person who never messes up, like Saul, right? Um, I'm the best Pharisee. I'm the best law keeper. He always won the, the best obeyer award every year. For some, our identity was shaped early uh, by someone significant in your life, like a parent. Um, and this could have been a hard uh, thing, a hard relationship. You may have either heard verbally or implied, um, you're, you're really, 
not good. You're, you're not valuable. You're, you're a failure. You'll never be good enough. I have a good friend whose father uh, never let him work on the car like he did his older brother. He always had to stand and maybe just hand the tools to him. And even to this day, in, in his 40s, he says, I'm, I still, because of that, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough. He says, I still wrestle with not feeling valued and having no voice. This could have been even with good intentions. You know, with a kid-centered world, parents are like, you know, you're so beautiful all the time. You're, you're so, you're brilliant. You are so talented and you hear it so much, you form your identity around that. That's who I am. I'm a smart person. But um, on the inside, it, it potentially leaves you tirelessly uh, trying to maintain that image. Um, you may have seen the recent Disney movie, Encanto. It's a, it's a really great movie that, that has everything to do with identity. Uh, everyone in the family receives these special gifts in, 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 this, in this town, this one family. And every sibling has a special gift except this one girl named Mirabelle. And the other sibling seems so perfect to her until one day this, the, one, one of the, her sisters with the supernatural strength reveals what's going on on the inside and she sings this song that was uh, on top of the charts when, when it came out, but she sang this. She said, I'm the strong one. I'm not nervous. And then she goes on and, and, and then she says, but under the surface, I feel like a tightrope walker in a three-ring circus. Under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm worthless if I can't be of service. It's pressure like a drip Drip, drip, that'll never stop. Who am I if I can't run with the ball? If I can't be strong? See, the more your sense of identity comes from how someone defined you or being a good person or being a hard worker or being beautiful, smart, successful, or on the right political side or any of that, anything outside of God, the more you will feel an inner sense of a weak identity in that book I mentioned earlier, Beyond Identity, it says this. The person with a weak sense of identity is painfully concerned with him or herself. This person is keenly conscious of being one who is fragile, unreal, and unsubstantial. They might describe themselves as masses of contradictory selves or several actors on a stage without a script or director. They're apt to be what Eric Erickson called identity hungry, that is, in relationships with others where they try to find or fortify themselves, whether by bragging, self-assertion, manipulation, or self-pitying withdrawal. If we're honest, if I'm honest, I can relate with this. Walking into a room sometimes, sometimes I feel strong, but a lot of times it's weak identity. I'm looking to find myself by being funny or accepted. and um, I can identify with this. And it's why we all need a new name. And in this situation, these religious Jews and Hellenist Greeks found themselves needing a new name. But as we read in verse 20, it says this, but some came preaching the Lord Jesus. And then everything changed. How do we receive a new name? How do we receive a new name? Point number two. Look at verse 21. 
It says this. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. See, this wasn't just um, they came preaching, you know, with a good speech, a good talk. They stood up in the square and like, hey, let me tell you some good things, you know, some some words of wisdom. No, it says the hand of the Lord was with them. This phrase is used 36 times in the Bible. And every time the hand of the Lord shows up, it's the embodiment of the divine power of God. God's fixing to be at work. He's fixing to do something big. And it's a humbling reminder that these Jews, these Hellenist Greeks in Antioch and all of us here today, we, we cannot change ourselves. No self-help book, um, no good talk, no podcast. They and we don't have the power to give ourselves a new name. For example, if I heard um, one of you say, um, hey, I need some help. Um, I'm looking for some help to tear down my, my barn or something like that. And I said, hey, let me give you a hand. And you say, well, that's great, but it all depends upon what you have in your hand, right? I mean, if all you, you're bringing to the table is a hammer, I appreciate your, you know, good intentions, but that's not going to work. But man, if you happen to own a big bulldozer, um, you know, my, my brother-in-law was visiting uh, this, this weekend, came to the service last night, and they, he works with this uh, asphalt company, and we one time went, and uh, uh, he, he let me drive this big bulldozer. Our whole family fit in the, the bucket of this thing. I mean, the whole family, literally. It's that big, and I climbed up inside, you know, up the ladder, and, and it is all controlled by this little tiny joystick. And I was like, I could, I could run through a barn. It's just... <laughs> I mean, just boom, just level barn. And, and I'm just thinking in this passage when it says the power, the hand of the Lord was with them, it's got to be like that, right? Because change from self-help, self-effort, self-anything to tear down your identity, it's like coming at it with a pocket knife or a plastic knife. You just can't do it. But if the hand of the Lord is with you, Oh, the power of God to break down any false identity from anything, any person, any parent, any words you feel like your identity is built around. Verse 21 says this was happening to them and it says a great number of people were believing and turning to the Lord, turning away from their false identities, their cultural identities. And then in verse 26, it says that these disciples were given a new name, a whole new identity, Christian. The name simply meant one who follows Christ or believes or belongs to Christ. There's a decent chance it even came from unbelievers who were trying to mock them. Oh, you're, you're a fo- Christ follower. That, that dead guy a few, few uh, months ago, yeah, I remember that. Um, Christ, he thought he was Messiah. But soon these uh, who bore this name bore it as a badge of great honor they knew Christ was not dead. It was not merely meant to be a name. It was meant to be the center of their identity. They were no longer Jews, simply, or simply Greeks. No longer Americans, first. No longer first Republicans or Democrats or successful businessman or moral woman. Or Their identity would now orbit around this person named Christ. Verse 22 says that so many Jews and Gentiles were believing in Jerusalem, uh, that, that those in Jerusalem heard about it, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch 
to check it out. And when he gets there, verse 23 says, he not only sees the unhindered power of God, but he sees the grace of God there in verse 23. What he's looking at is undeserved favor and approval. What he's looking at is he's seeing this group of all these Gentiles believing, he's saying, man, if they were left to themselves, they would never have done this. They would have never believed. But God's grace showed up. We'd have never found our identity, uh, been ever, if we were left to find our identity in morality, politics, accomplishments, what others thought of us, we would have, we would have always found it in, in there if left alone. But God decided to give them grace. He decided to, to go on a divine rescue. That's what grace means. I read a story a few, um, uh, a few days ago, actually, about this Cincinnati family who adopted a, a child named Mari in the Ukraine. And they were so excited about going to get her when the war broke out. And um, she got a text from this, the caretaker of this orphanage where her child lived. And it said, um, you know, please pray for us. We are being bombed. I think we're going to die. And this mother living in the suburban home in Cincinnati knew exactly what she needed to do. She left her safe suburb and headed to Ukraine to rescue her daughter. She's been living there for two months amidst all the bombing and the danger, waiting for approval to take her home. And the question is, why would she do that? And the article said simply, I already consider Mari my daughter. She belongs to our family. Mari already had a new name. There was no option for this mother. The only option was divine rescue. Not divine rescue, but rescue. And grace is this. It is a divine rescue. It's God deciding to set his love upon us when we didn't deserve it. And then sending his son Jesus on a divine rescue mission. Grace is Jesus coming suffering, um, suffering the horror of being cut off from his father on a cross so that we could be brought into the honor and value of belonging as a child of God. Grace is God sacrificing so much in order to write his name, not on the bottom of our foot, but deep within our soul, the core of our being, so that God himself is saying, no matter what your identity you think it is, if you're a Christian, he says, you belong to me. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are mine. Is there anything better in life than to hear that? There is nothing. If if you're a Christian here today, God wants you to hear that. He wants you to believe it. Believe it once again. You you know, in number six, um, the famous passage where there's this um, blessing of God upon his people. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, uh, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Right after that, there's a verse that's, that's, not, that's not quoted, but it's where the Lord says, he says, look, he says, um, so shall they put my name upon my people and I will bless them. This is me writing my name upon them. As one commentator said about this passage, he says, to put one's name upon something in that culture was to give, it a distinct, give them a distinct stamp or mark of ownership. 
In the eyes of God's people, the name of the Lord was to give them the assurance of God's blessing upon them. Not because they're good enough or earned it. It was a pronounced mark of his pleasure and zeal to do them good. Life should forever be different. And so if you are a believer, if your faith is simply in Christ, if you bear the name Christian, life should be different. God wants you to feel this. If you have an inner voice that says unloved, unlovable, failure, disappointment, God says, listen, you belong to me, loved, forgiven, valued. If you feel that you're, you constantly have to strive to maintain an image before people, in crowds of people, God wants you to walk into crowds and, and, and parties and, and groups and golf games. And he, he, he wants you to just say, Jesus says, stop, you can stop striving I am and I will be enough for you. Just come to me and find rest for your, for your weary soul. And when Jesus gives you a new name, it really does set you free from all the other names that people have given you or that you have given yourself. God's name is upon you, Christian. So that is how we get a new name. And what's the result? What is the result of receiving a new name? Verse 23 says that when Barnabas showed up, it says he saw the grace of God. Right there. When he came and saw the grace, what does the grace of God look like? What did he see? See, grace just isn't a theological, churchy term. It's, grace should be something observable. If God's name and blessing is upon you, life will be different. I love how Ray has set um, kind of a culture around our church of expectation of this, of observable grace. In almost every meeting we have and our staff, um, he'll, he'll begin with this question. How have you seen God at work? How have you seen God at work recently? See, he's sending this expectation. God's grace should be observable. For example, two or three weeks ago, um, we were, we, he did this and we shared some and he, he shared a story of how a, um, uh, after church, two or three weeks ago, someone came up to him after church and a, and a, and a person had been, um, this person was a neighbor of a member and the person shared how their neighbor, who's coming to our church, um, had been suffering really terribly this whole year and that she's been observing how she is suffering differently than everyone else she knows because she's a Christian. She saw observable grace in, the, in her neighbor and she just simply said, I want that inside of me. And she ended up praying to receive Christ right there in the narthex. Observable grace. How is God's grace observable in your life or your family? And, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I get it. We're, you know, we're just, we're just, I'm just glad to be facing the right direction. I feel like I'm getting knocked backwards. But doesn't it leave you with a desire for the power, powerful hand of God to come into your life and make grace observable? Let me give you two ways that grace is observable in this passage. There's many ways that grace could be observable, but let me just end the sermon with two ways. One, it should give you a motivation to be built up. A motivation to be built up. See, many were being converted here in Antioch, but Barnabas knew that these Christians, um, you know, I'm, he wasn't just glad that they were being converted. He knew that they needed to grow. Every Christian's called to grow spiritually. 
mature in Christ, just like we want our babies. We don't, I don't want my, f- my five-year-old to remain at, you know, 43 inches for the rest of his life. In the same way, we should be different three years from now, five years from now. And so he says, it, it says the pastor says, he goes and grabs Saul to come help him teach for a whole year and disciple these new believers. He wants them to be built up. It's a reminder that the more that we grow in God's grace, the more we will find our identity, the more we find our identity in belonging to Christ, um, it's a reminder that the less we really will find um, a sense of that weak identity I spoke of earlier, the more we'll find our identity strengthening, our identity being built up. That book, um, Beyond Identity, that I quoted earlier, it says, um, if your identity is being built up in Christ, it says, those with a strong identity, I don't think I put a quote up here, but he says, we will start to experience peace with others, peace with self, and peace with God. And this person with a strong identity will have a certain self-forgetfulness, a lack of self-absorption and self-consciousness. How attractive is that when you walk into a room or a group of people or in your family behind the scenes when you're criticized or whatever? You have that strong sense of self, a self-forgetfulness, a lack of self-absorption. Like Barnabas and Saul, help these Christians grow, it's a reminder that we need others to help us grow. No Christian is meant to grow spiritually on your own. We need other believers, mentors, friends. We need life groups, anyone else to help us grow spiritually to come alongside us. And so just like your car is not meant to drive a thousand miles on one tank of gas, your heart is not meant to go the whole week on one sermon. You need to be built up and encouraged day in and day out, as Romans, or Hebrews 3 says, throughout your week. So we need, we need, you need what you get when you leave here at 11.15 on any given Sunday morning or 11.30 when Ray preaches or whatever. Um, you need that to get into 8, 8 a.m. on Monday and Tuesday, right? So your tank is full. Your identity is, is strong. I met with someone recently that was pretty discouraged with feelings of loneliness and worthlessness, they said. And I opened my Bible and started reading some passages that I thought kind of spoke to that. And they, one of them was from Psalm 103. It spoke to a sense of worthlessness and says, um, as high as, God says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. And I simply just turned to them and I said, do you believe this? And they said, yes. And then they put their head down, but I don't feel it right now. And man, I, I was like, I get that. I, I identify with that all the time. I know certain things, I just don't feel them all the time. But I said, look at me, because your mind's not running through that. Things get gray sometimes, get cloudy. But believe me, because I'm saying this is what God is saying to you. As high as the heavens are above the earth, he loves you like that. And what I think happens through that, God uses his word like a sword and start to penetrate, right? He starts to bring light. He starts to push away the clouds. We need others to help us grow. Singleness is hard. Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Work is hard. Retirement's hard. We're all tempted to forget our identity in Christ, become discouraged. Living in God's grace requires someone else, someone like Woody did the buzz. <laughs> you discouraged? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. 
There's someone else. There's someone who has put his name upon you. His mark of pleasure, his his value of you, his zeal to do you good. And it's not because you're so great. It's because you belong to him. That is your identity. So I just simply ask, if, if you don't have someone to do this, would you seek that this week as an exhortation? Would you find that someone? And if you don't know who that is, would you go to our website where we have life groups and just say, I want to be in a life group. Let us know and we'll get back with you. Observable grace should lead to a motivation to be built up. And then lastly, quickly, it it also is a motivation to be sent out. Because what's absolutely astounding in this passage that we don't have time to really give context for is that these new believers who are Greek, Hellenists, looking down on these conquered Jews, all of a sudden start to bear the name Christian. All of a sudden start to go to church with these other Jews because their primary identity is now being Christian alongside them. And they, up in Antioch, hear of this famine that's uh, coming into the, the, uh, Judea, this Jewish population. And you know what they did? They immediately take out money out of their savings and take a, take a, uh, have a fund and send it to these Jews within the first year of being a Christian. The disciples did that. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's just astounding to me. My family, as I said, is in town and we, um, uh, my parents are staying with Larry and Andrea here sitting right there on the second aisle. Um, that's where I stayed when I first moved here. They have a back house and are so hospitable. But we went over there. They, they said, we want to do you a cookout. And we brought our 15 crazy people over there to swim and they had everything prepared. And as we were thanking them on the way in, um, they said what I've heard about seven or eight times. They said, we were like, thank you so much. And they're like, no, no, no. You know, this isn't our house. This is God's house. We only enjoy, we we just get to enjoy using it to serve others. I love that. Observable grace motivates us to be built up, but also then sent out to to use whatever gifts and resources God's given us to go out and serve and bless others. Who or what gives you your identity? Who or what gives you your identity? And if you are a Christian, by the powerful hand and powerful grace of God, he's given you a new name. And he wants us to go out into the world now with the assurance that you are loved, a child of God, and you belong to him forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we simply want to ask that you would powerfully help us leave here with the assurance of your blessing upon us and that we belong to you. Not because we have done anything to deserve it, because we are good enough, but because Christ came on a divine rescue mission. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.